Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a community dedicated to helping women connect, learn and lead. One of the most exciting ways we do this is at our annual Future Women Leadership Summit. This year's summit was equally thought-provoking and inspirational, offering plenty of practical take-home advice to accelerate your career. If you couldn't make it, don't worry. I'm bringing you the next best thing to being in the room and sharing the highlights from this year's event. On day two of the conference, we had a session that asked if women are Australia's and the world's greatest untapped resource, which unsurprisingly to listeners of this podcast is a rhetorical question. We know women face many more barriers than men in the workforce. So what practical steps can we take to tackle this and ensure women are able to reach their full potential to benefit them personally as well as the economy more generally. This panel features Suzanne Legina, CEO of Plan International Australia, Bronnie Taylor, Deputy Leader of the New South Wales Nationals, Rosemary Driscoll, Director of the Cyber CX Academy, and Rebecca Hansen, the Head of the Jobs Academy of Future Women. It's moderated by Jamila Rizvi, Future Women's Deputy Managing Director. So some people may know there is an acute shortage of cyber-skilled workers in Australia. The vacancy rate is projected to reach 30,000 by the year 2024. So we talk about this a lot in the cyber and the tech industry, but for some companies, it's a frustration. If you're a big consultancy, if you're a mining company, you have a security team, maybe you're 15 of those, six are cyber experts, you've got a couple of vacancies and that's a problem. But for cyber CX, all we do is cybersecurity. So we have 1,300 employees all around Australia. And I like to say that we reached crisis point perhaps before others did. But as is often the case, when you reach the crisis point, it can actually be really liberating. It's unequivocal that the status quo isn't working and you have a license to try something quite radical and something quite new. And so we created the CyberCX Academy. So when I came to work for CyberCX and we were talking about the design principles of the CyberCX Academy, where traditional graduate programs would say you need to have some kind of TAFE or university uh, qualifications in cyber or previous experience, let's get rid of those. The next thing we need to do is get serious about diversity in the cybersecurity workforce. Um, at the moment, only 21% of the cybersecurity workforce is women and there are other minority groups which are underrepresented. We need to walk the walk on that. We need to get people on the tools quickly. So what we know from our experience in CyberCX is that um, that is the best way to learn and we need to make sure that the people that we're bringing through are job ready. We need to operate at scale. So none of this, you bring in 12 university graduates in January and then they, you know, continue on and then you think about doing it again the next January. We're looking at, you know, in, in order to meet those ambitious targets, three intakes a year of 50 to 100 associates each time. And then the last point was we need to pay people a proper wage while they train. And that represents a really significant financial bet that our company is making, which is we are going to offer people money to come and learn their cyber skills, their, their cyber trade craft, and we're going to back that bet. We think we're going to attract great people and we think that we're going to give them the right training. And from that basis, the CyberCX Academy was designed and launched. Folks, our next panel discussion is all about women's workforce participation. And thank you so much to Rosemary for setting the scene with, I suppose, some big ambition about what organisations can do if they really want to think big when it comes to boosting women's participation in the workforce. In this session, we're going to ask if women are Australia's and the world's 
greatest untapped resource? Not only what makes them necessary, but how do they actually help people? These programs are truly everything to people who want to make career changes into exciting industries like cyber. So in terms of uh, retention programs and training programs like the one we just heard about, they're so effective because they're removing barriers that are preventing women and non-binary people from entering the industry. And Rosemary referenced there was 21% representation in cybersecurity. So clearly, as she said, the status quo needs to change and we need to uh, move it from talking and into meaningful and intentional action if we want to see change. And so the things that really stood out to me in that announcement a few moments ago was firstly that it's a paid training program because it's really not an option for so many women to forego an income while they're undertaking a period of intense reskilling. And that's a huge barrier for women wanting to pursue career changes and keeps a whole lot of women out of the industry. Similarly, the note around not requiring qualifications, not requiring tertiary degrees, not requiring experience, just opens the pool up so much wider. And also seeing that part-time option embedded into the program means that you don't have to negotiate for those part-time hours. You don't have to ask for it. You don't, it doesn't depend on your manager's personal opinions about flexibility as something that will be available to you. So these type of programs are so important in removing barriers and opening them up to more people. Thanks, Becky. And it's so true. One of the main things that comes up when we're talking to Jobs Academy participants is, but hold on, I can only work this many hours a week. And that job sounds amazing. And when I say, well, you should just apply anyway and tell them that you can only work part-time at the end once they've fallen in love with you, there are more ethical people than me that go, that doesn't sound like the right thing to do. So it's nice to be upfront about it. Bronnie, I'm going to turn to you and broaden the conversation up a little bit. The number of women in New South Wales in the workforce has increased really significantly over the past few decades, but it does, as it does across Australia, lag men's participation in work. And the gap is even greater for women in rural, in regional and remote areas. What are the, some of the biggest challenges that those women face when it comes to securing work that they love? Yeah, no, thanks very much. And I think for, and I think there's quite a few rural and regional women here. Yay! Can I just say as well that for myself, being someone who was a city person and actually grew up overseas. My dad worked for Qantas. We moved around a lot. I'd never been to the country or lived in the country, but I can honestly say to each and every one of you, had I not married that farmer and worked at Cooma Hospital, I wouldn't be sitting here as the Minister for Women in New South Wales because the opportunities are actually endless. So I'm actually quite protective about that conversation because I think for so long people sort of saw us in the regions as, you know, not doing things as we as other people in the city were, but we really do in the opportunities are endless. The barriers are IT, are obviously connectivity, but God bless Elon Musk. He has really changed our lives out there with, with our X satellite. I mean, I can stream now, you guys. I couldn't stream a Netflix show. Like this, is, this was our lives, right? So women are just starting to realise, I think, about transferability of skills. So when I was a nurse, I never gave myself credibility for actually being a really good problem solver because I would get a dirty, nasty wound and I would be able to heal it. But I didn't see it in that way and I didn't realise how much of my counselling and psychology skills I would use in the parliament. I mean, that's been endless. 
Um, so, you know, but I think too, I think we're actually all really starting to realise that, that, you know, it's not just one career or one thing. And I think for regional women and for those of you in the city that want to move to the regions, I know the Department of Regional New South Wales, hello, they can give you all sorts of ideas about the opportunities in the country. But I think we are having a real renaissance of country women because we have incredible people out there who are highly skilled, highly motivated, but perhaps haven't had the opportunities that now connectivity brings and also COVID and part-time work and women actually, we negotiate now. You know, you all have that power to be able to do that. I think now the opportunities in the regions are incredible and the opportunities for regional women who are incredible, resilient amazing people. It's really their time. Thank you so much for that, especially for your enthusiasm. As, you know, as someone who is also a, a manager and employer, it's, I noticed the same thing, you know, during uh, lockdown in Melbourne where things were pretty rough for us down there. The One of the joys of my life was watching uh, one of our regional team members, if she's here, she'll get embarrassed, uh, Patty Andrews, who is behind all of the art that Future Women does and is incredible in our content team as well, was in a caravan with her family. She lives regionally anyway, but travelling around the country. And it was like this little window into all of the different regions and remote areas of this country. Um, just recently, we've hired a new team member who said, oh, but I'm an hour and a half out of Melbourne I'm not someone who's going to be able to come in every day. And it was so nice to be able to say, I mean, great if you want to, but there is zero pressure. You come when you like. We can make this work for you. So there's a whole lot of opportunities, women out there in the regions who are really keen to find work that works for them. Suzanne, I've just left you over there being quiet for a little while. The Victorian Premier told the Jobs and Skills Summit in Canberra last year that women are Australia's greatest untapped resource. If we could better facilitate their participation in paid work, and that's the key. Plan International Australia works with some absolutely incredible young women here in this country through the Youth Activist Series. Why do you think that it's those young women who will be the key drivers of our economy into the future? The things that really strike me about the young people that work with us in this Youth Activist Series, we work together as partners on big problems in Australia, street harassment, online safety, representation in parliament. We um, have designed evidence together. We've um, created spaces where we can bring change makers and decision makers together. And I can tell you that they are teaching me about how change happens. Young people are designing a future, but it's an intersectional future as well. They're super diverse. They bring all different kinds of lived experience. They're the ones that challenge me to really rethink the binaries of gender, to rethink about who's missing from the table. So I think when they are designing their own businesses, because they're almost all designing their own businesses as well as working in businesses, as well as side hustles, as well as social enterprises that they're running. They are thinking in a completely transformative way about um, not just economies, actually. They're thinking societies. They're thinking about how do you design a society I want to be part of and then how do I get money to live in it, not the other way around. Are you noticing amongst the younger women that you're working with through the plan programs that there is a different approach to relationships? It's, a, it's often the thing that I'm asked most about. I think they're rethinking, and not just for this reason, but I think because of climate change and other things too, people are really rethinking what, what family life looks like. They're reimagining different ways of living together, sharing children in their life that might not be their own. I think that opens up a lot of opportunities for us to reimagine 
um, a country and a society and a world where we could do different things and we could come together as community in all kinds of different fashions. And that includes everyone through the LGBTI community. And we could just rethink this. And I, I think people are reimagining their futures. They're not necessarily imagining they're going to have their own children but they are definitely wanting children in their lives and I think that that could be great because we know that we need a village for that and that's the only way we can raise happy, thriving children anyway. Thank you. Becky, helping people who are unemployed break into the workforce has been notoriously difficult for governments. It's a, it's a complex space to work in. What is it about the design of what you're running with Jobs Academy that means that it is working for women? I think a really important part of this is knowing your audience so and to know intimately and deeply what their needs are and what the barriers are that are holding them back from returning to the workforce. So we've really been able, you know, to leverage all of the insights and years of learning from future women around women and careers and how we can sort of transfer and apply that into the academy to help women accelerate their careers and their next step and help them achieve their goal, whatever that might be. Other design elements I think that have really shown to be effective is a real focus on connection. So in the sense that, you know, if you are looking to return to the workforce, it can be a really lonely thing. So to be able to connect with other women who have shared life experiences can make you feel less alone. And these types of things are so much easier to do when you have a supportive community around you. I think another important part of the success of Jobs Academy has been in relation to some of the employers that we work with. And it's working with employers who sort of get what we're trying to do. They get the mission. They want to work with women. They want to recruit women returning from career breaks, women who are making career changes, older women. And it's to find those right employers and then to have those effective industry partnerships to power the program. I also think the virtual delivery is really important as well in the sense that we can work with women from around Australia and I guess connect with them at the time and place online that works for them. So it gives a lot more flexibility in how they can participate. Um, and to what Brody said earlier, it's an employee's market at the moment. And so there are some great opportunities. I want to turn back to you, Rosemary. Australia has a hugely gender-segregated workforce. And, and by that, I mean that most industries and most workplaces are dominated by one gender. And perhaps unsurprisingly, the male-dominated industries generally attract higher salaries. What else can tech companies and other male-dominated industries do to recruit more women into roles and also provide them training opportunities? We do. We, we talk about it a lot in CyberCX. And I mean, one of the things that strikes me is that, as I mentioned, the industry average is 21% in terms of uh, women's representation in the, in the workforce. The leadership are pretty convicted about it. They're pretty serious about trying to change it. And I mentioned before that, you know, CyberCX, we got to the, the crisis point in terms of cyber skills. Um, there's something liberating about knowing that you have a really big problem because it means that nothing's off the table in terms of what you're trying to do. There's a, there's a real freedom that comes with that. There are a lot of initiatives within CyberCX. We have um, a whole range of support 
support mechanisms within the organisation to connect people to mentors, to share experiences, is picking up on Becky's point because I think that that's really important and to really drive the change and the environments that people want to work in. So I think it'll be a mixture of those kind of levers. But um, as I said, I'm really, I'm, I'm convinced by the sincerity of the commitment to change. It's just making sure that we can, you know, turn that into action. Ronnie, too often, I think in in years gone past, strategies to support women's participation in work have amounted to not much more than trying to fix the women. Uh, Sort of, you know, like if the women lean in, if you ask for more money, if you do this, then then the opportunities will come to you. Rather than recognising that this is a systemic question, not an individual level one. How do we change that conversation and start having a conversation that is more systemic so that all women can reach their potential, including those who face barriers to participation. Yeah, look, I'm actually, um, I'm super positive about the future and where we're going as women. And when I look back, I'm 54, I almost said 40, I'm 54, I was 54 last week. And um, and I came from a very female-dominated profession in nursing to a very male-dominated, if you want to call it, profession in politics. I'll, I'll leave that one with you guys. But, you know, neither was, I don't think, a very healthy sort of scenario. I think it's really important to have balance and to have all of that balance that's there. But I sat on a panel yesterday. I'm from down near Cooma in the Snowy Mountains where Snowy 2.0 is happening at the moment, which is, you know, meant to be, not to get into an energy debate, but this amazing sort of battery to power renewables for the whole state. And it's just incredible because suddenly our town has transformed and we've got all of these people, you know, just just thousands and thousands of people that have come in to work on this project. And I sat on a panel with a female electrician who's in her second year of her apprenticeship and two female engineers, just amazing, incredible women. But one of them was 21, the other one was 25, the other one in her 30s. And the two um, young women that were in their 20s said to me, look, I don't want to be the female engineer here. I want to be the engineer. And the lady who was doing her trade said, I don't want to be here because I'm, you know, my second year apprenticeship in my trade and I want to go on to do another trade. I just want to know, be known for my skills. And they acknowledged that the things were different for them and that people sometimes related to them differently. But that generation coming through probably doesn't see it how I saw it or how I thought I would see it for my daughters. And I I thought that was really powerful. And I think now that that conversation is changing and shifting, do we have an issue? Yes. And particularly with women over 55, because that's our highest rate of homelessness. And there are real issues around superannuation and things like that, that are going to be legacies of previous times. But I think this generation are really knocking it out of the park. So I think our conversation also has to shift in that along with that generation and saying they they want to be there for who they are and they deserve to be there and they've worked really hard to be there and they acknowledge that many of people have also, you know, pushed through enormous barriers to get them there. But I think we have a responsibility to shift and change that conversation as well and I think that we are doing that and I think as well that the future is extremely promising and also the generation of young women coming through. So, 
When I was married and had my children and lived on a farm, and I'm married to a really fantastic bloke who believed in me more than I ever believed in myself. To start with, I do believe in myself now. But, um, you know, and, and it was a really big deal when Duncan would pick the kids up from the school bus. I lived 5.6 k's down a dirt road, right? So you had to be at the end of the road to get them on and off the bus. And, you know, God love him, he'd forget and they'd end up at the bus driver's house, which in the country is okay because they actually had really good connectivity and the kids found out about, you know, streaming television. But, you know, that, that I was really grateful that Dunk did that. Now, when I say that to my daughters, they're like grateful. You know, that's what, the expectation is so different on shared caring and shared parenting. It also has to get into shared when your parents are older because when you're my age, you can find yourself at the peak of your career. You've got elderly ageing parents and let's not even go into the whole aged care space and the challenge around that caring role. But I think that has changed. So the expectation is different and that sharing is different, which will liberate that generation of women to be able to be the best version of themselves as to what they choose. So I'm really super positive about it. I think we've had enormous change and I think the opportunities for women now are, are endless if we just grab them and take them. Thank you for that. That was very energising. And I'm going to stick with this young person theme because I'm coming back to Suzanne. We need to find ways to invest in girls. We need to find ways to unlock their potential. And that's not just an Australian question. That's a global question, of course. A key tenant of plans philosophy is around an approach to global aid that focuses on girls. Can you tell us a little bit more about it and why that works from an economic perspective? Yeah, so there's some statistics. I don't remember statistics. I haven't got a brain for that. But one of them that stayed with me when I first joined Plan was that if you were a girl born in South Sudan you are more likely to die in childbirth than you are to finish secondary school. And I, I remember reading the statistic. I revisit it very often. I still find it impossible to imagine that that is still true in 2023 and that in um, our own region, half a billion girls are locked out of education, don't get to participate. And the World Bank says this, not me, but the World Bank says the key to achieving the sustainable development goals to unlocking economies and societies is the 10-year-old girl. If we can get her as she leaves childhood and starts to enter adolescence, we get her to stay in school and we can provide the facilities for her to be able to thrive and marry when she wants to and have children when she wants to and have access to the healthcare that she needs to do all those things, what we would unlock is billions and billions and billions of dollars in economies and societies around the world and create the opportunity for so much more participation. Because of COVID, millions of girls got taken out of school. We know that here. They, they got to, what we know, though, in many of the places where plan works is they don't return back to school because they've been brought into unpaid work. They're looking after their siblings. They are working on fields. They are deployed to um, duties at home. And so um, when you have investment in overseas aid and development and you're looking at that potential and the 10-year-old girl and we're 2023 and 2030 is only seven years away, I kind of think pretty good investment to invest in girls' education and unlocking that. But what we see when we look at what is invested in is that less than 5% of the overseas aid and development budget goes to anything like girls. And while there are efforts to make gender equality a feature of all investments over $3 million and there's new targets that have been put in, we would say we really need to imagine what the world needs to look like and then we need to invest in the things that we think would unlock them and that requires a gender lens and it requires an intersectional gender lens that looks at those people most locked out 
They're the disabled kids. They're the girls from the most marginal rural environments and find ways to unlock them. I can't help but feel like, you know, all over the world we see examples, whether it's Malala, Yusuf or um, those girls in Iran or girls in Afghanistan who keep showing up. They are young women, Greta Thunberg leading the climate movement. They are young women who are leading the charge for change. I just think, you know, how could we lock out half the world And where is all that potential there to help us unsolve some of the world's wickedest problems if we're not involving them? So for me, it's this um, accelerate. One thing you could do to accelerate would be to invest in girls' education the world over and get those people into the world and and using their incredible talents, their lived experience and their brains to help us. That's that's where I'm at. (laughs) Thank you. Becky, you've been leading... Sorry, that was a fast step change. We're going back domestic. <laughs> You've been leading the Jobs Academy for 18 months now and it has been incredible under your leadership. You should be very proud. Can you tell us about the camaraderie and some of the friendships that have formed between the participants and how actually that camaraderie and friendship has helped people along the way? Yeah. Thank you, Jamila. It's really been exceptional. The community is a real focus uh, for what we do at it in Jobs Academy and we put an enormous amount of resources and energy into really creating and cultivating that sense of community and connection. And so over the last 18 months, we've seen everything from, you know, people helping each other write job applications, review resumes, private WhatsApp groups popping up everywhere in real life meetups, people sharing connections and we've had people get jobs through the connections of other members of the academy or get the lead on a a training program that they end up getting based off something they've heard from within the academy community. And it just has a a real generous spirit to it. And it really is a good reminder about, the you know, if you make the ask, how often people will meet you and say yes when you put yourself out there. So the community element has certainly been a driver in terms of people's success. When we're sort of looking at the insights, we can see how that is a driver of people achieving the outcome that they wanted to achieve. Uh, And it's also a driver of engagement as well, which in programs like this, if you do want to make change, you have to commit, you have to carve out the time to do that deep work to think about what you want or what you want from your career. Uh, So it's been, yeah, really exceptional in that way. Thank you. I want to say an enormous thank you to our panel. Thanks again to our panellists, Susan Legina, Ronnie Taylor, Rosemary Driscoll, Rebecca Hanson, and moderator, Jamila Rizvi. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall. 